and it still felt like, you know, maybe I'm not a farmer and pretending or something, but you know, after about like year three, year four, when we, after we dealt with some, uh, some pretty hard curveballs that were thrown to us, I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I'm in this and I think I'm good at it. And, uh, and now I'm a farmer. So <laughs> this is the real food, real people podcast. The amount of work and science and art that goes into those Washington wines that we've all grown to love so much is incredible. And our guest this week gives us an eye into what's going on behind the scenes with all that, how it really works and how they grow amazing grapes here in Washington to make wine. Andrew Schultz is our guest this week and next I learned so much about growing grapes and how it makes amazing wine in this conversation. I kind of geeked out as a farm kid. Also, you know, some people are just natural born leaders and that's Andrew. And by the end of this conversation, I I was feeling like, uh, can, can you hire me? Like, I, I just want to, his, his vision for what they're doing. I just wanted to be a part of it. It was magnetic. So Join me in this conversation. Really cool stuff. You're going to learn so much about what really goes into wine and really be inspired by Andrew and his backstory, the things that he went through to lead him to where he is now. Incredible stuff. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast, and we're glad that you're here this week. Don't forget to subscribe. I know you've got a long backstory, but let's just start with how did you get into farming? Farming in general. Um, well, so I got out of the service was where I actually started, where I actually was farming. And um, I and you served in the Marines? Uh, no, I was in the U.S. Army. In the Army? Yep. Okay. And uh, I, I got out and had the GI Bill, and I, I actually wanted to be a brewer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became a brewer um, within six months of exiting. Um I basically listened to a bunch of podcasts uh, from <laughs> California uh, while I was driving back and forth to you know going to school, and um, uh, then I sat down at a local brewery. I didn't know I was sitting next to the head brewer. Um, <laughs> him and I started having a conversation. He was supposed to teach me how to uh, distill, and instead he calls me up in like a month and asks me to work for him. And um, mm-hmm. and it was kind of interesting working for him because. Um, you know, he liked doing all the production brewery, uh, brewing and all that stuff for the, for the main products. Um, but he kicked down like the majority of the odd beers to me and, you know, the brewing club and stuff. So I ended up brewing like, you know, 12 to 14 styles probably on average per year. What was your thing? What was your favorite? Um, I mean, you're talking odd stuff. What kind of stuff were you working on? Uh, one of my favorite, um, beers is like a, is an alt beer from Germany. And the reason why I like the alt beer is um, it, it's like the predecessor to the red beer and not, mm-hmm. and I'm not even really that much of a red beer fan, mm-hmm. um, but it's the predecessor to it, which is really cool. Cause Louis Pasteur came out with a, you know, basically a yeast that was, you know, for Pilsners and stuff like that produces a lot more phenolics. And, um, that's why they have a lagering process. And, you know, back in the day they didn't have, you know, temperature control for grain to be able to roast it. So it was either really heavily toasted or it was really lightly toasted. 
And so how they created these red beers, this out beer back in the day was, it was built and fermented and treated just like a Pilsner, except for, you know, in the, in the process, in the beginning, they had, you know, a small portion of really heavily roasted uh, grain essentially. And so um, what you end up getting is this really light bodied beer that has this roastiness to it. And so Mm -hmm. that, that was one of my favorite styles of beer that I like brewing. You're making me thirsty for beer already. Right. We've just started talking. This isn't good. Yeah. I should have brought some beer along with. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you were in brewing, and then how did that so lead I, to farming? Well, it's, so I was going to a community college in Pendleton um, for the first uh, six months to pick up classes because I needed to do something after I got out. And I basically took you know nine months off of not working or whatever. Um, started in w, Started at WSU in the fall. Um, had that conversation with that brewer sometime around August or September, right after I'd started classes and was living in Tri-Cities and bought a home. Uh, and um, so I, I actually accepted that job to be the brewer, and we and I did it on the weekends. And then at the same time, I'd sent an email to um, a professor that worked at IREC, which is the Irrigated Agricultural Research and Extension Center in Prosser, uh, one of the largest uh, research centers in the U.S. for, for agriculture. Hmm. And it was Dr. Naidu Raipati, and he was interested in having somebody, um, you know, basically help him do, you know, grape leaf roll virus epidemiology. So, um, and I accepted that as well. And that was flex time during school. And so basically in the afternoons, um, you know, during the week, I would go out and I would count these fields based on visual identification. We put them in. Um, Excel sheets to map the virus spread over a number of years. And I've worked with him for about 11 years now um, in different capacities over the last three or four years because I've had different jobs, but we still do research on our properties um, and and use him quite a bit to help him um, understand, you know, how to deal with that, uh, that major virus in the, in the wine industry. But it was funny because it put me on this property that we're at right now, which is clips on vineyards. And, uh, and I met the GM at the time, which was Julia Cook, and and she ended up hiring me for a job uh, because she liked me. So so mm-hmm. now I got three jobs, right? And <laughs> plus I was taking full time, uh, you know, classes, fifteen, sixteen credit hours in school, and and what I said when I was going into essentially, um, you know, school, if I'm going to go to school for this thing, um, I'm going to work in the industry that I'm going to school for. Um, so that I can cut the curve of, you know, actually getting a good paying job when I get out and all those other things. And, and, um, and I wasn't planning on farming yet at the time by picking up those two jobs, the epidemiology job, and then working flex time as a VIT tech, you know, at Clipson, um, I actually fell in love with farming. I was looking for a solution. I didn't want to be in an office, you know, mm-hmm. anymore sitting behind a desk and, and, uh, and I found out I was pretty good at it. And so I just kind of hammered down on that and, so then I, I said, well, brewing seemed to be pretty easy. Um, uh, I think I'm going to go this farming path. And Do you want it more of a challenge? Yes. Yeah. It, I think that's really what it came down to. Uh, in the end, I'm, you know, based on the other jobs and stuff I've had in the past, you know, uh, I'm a systems thinker. And, and so, you know, the ultimate system is one that takes away a lot of control and you still have to get the same outcome in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and that's essentially a, really concise way to put for me <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things that are just entirely out of your control aren't there yep yeah absolutely what's the biggest thing for for you guys that's like you can't control it and it could totally <laughs> mess you up you know try and understand you know how much heat's going to be in a particular year you can build your crop 
a, a different way. And, um, you know, but for the most part now we've kind of systematized the whole thing, at least the way that, you know, my company looks at, um, you know, growing grapes. And so, uh, you know, we have, uh, we measure a bunch of different, um, uh, factors in the vineyard essentially that help us understand, you know, how much light's coming into the canopy. Um, and we really do that on, you know, how many shoots are per lineal foot within a, within a canopy. And then, and then, you know, the trellis equation basically says that you have to have 40 inches of canopy. So we do what we can to get there. And, um, and then the fruit load, you know, should be as far as what we've seen for really high quality stuff between 1.6 and 1.8 pounds per foot of cordon out there. And so if you can hit all those parameters in any one year, um, then, uh, by and large, um, you know, you'll get what you want in the end. And, uh, but you know, we create all those systems because every year and I have yet to see anything different, you know, these are all decisions. Like if we hit these, then we should be in some pretty high quality bracket. Um, what that allows us to do is that systematizes a lot of our normal decision-making process. And that can allow us to, um, uh, basically manage the anomalies and they happen different every year, you know, um, 2016 and 2017 um, were some of the highest, you know, winter rain for our area in the last, you know, 20 years. And, and so getting rid of that water, um, you know, is, is probably the biggest trick that we have is, and, you know, essentially what we do is we let the, the plant farm that, you know, mm-hmm. so we won't irrigate during that time. So the plant pulls out and uses as much as possible. And when we get down to where there's near zero plant availability, then we basically manage and control that stress over about a three week period. And then we go back to full irrigation for the rest of the year. Mm. And, um, so the trick, the biggest trick is being able to, you know, get rid of the water in years where we have a bunch or understanding that we don't have enough, or maybe it's unevenly distributed in in the soil and and how we're going to approach those things. So those are usually the biggest decisions, those types of anomalies. And, and there's other ones too that uh, that pop up. Some really odd ones. Um, one of them was, uh, for example, um, 2000 and uh, would have been 2016. Um, we had a really warm start to the year, so soil temperatures in the valley were sitting right around 47 uh, degrees. A lot of the plants start to come out of dormancy, but you know biological system so not everything comes out of dormancy you know evenly mm-hmm. and um and what ends up happening is part of those buds came out of dormancy and were working at a really slow metabolic rate because the temperature went back down for about a month and part of them hadn't came out of dormancy and so when the temperature warmed up the canopy was uneven on a on a per plant basis which means that it's not human created and um and then, you know, two months later, we're trying to make decisions on how to shut the canopy down or when, and you've got, you know, canes in there that are, you know, at your 40 inches and you've got canes in there that are at, you know, 30 inches and, um, you know, which one do you manage to? And, and so what we ended up doing in that particular case was we just bit the bullet on the cost. Um, we managed to the shortest canes because that was going to get everything to where we wanted. And, and we went back and it ended up not being as bad as we thought. We just had to, we ran some guys through some machetes real quick and they knocked off the tips of a lot of those canes that were long and, and everything was great. What does this all mean for the wine drinker? Um, yeah, all these things that are changing and you're dealing with, is that changing the flavor of what they experience when they open that bottle? Is it changing just how much of it's available? I mean, what? So there's, 
there's definitely, um, so what I can speak to is, or at least what my job is or how I view my job is, is what we do is we try to give the winemaker as much material to use as possible to make the best wine possible. And so some of those things that are, you know, and I call them non-purchasable, they absolutely are purchasable, purchasable, you know, these, these large companies buy things like mega purple and stuff like that to make wine have more color or, you know, um, tannins that are derived from either other plants or the same plant and and um and a lot of those are you know a single type of tannin or maybe a single type of acid not what you actually get in nature which is this really nice you know wide breadth of uh, natural acids or natural tannins you know at different sizes and things like that that and so we try to give that to the to the to the winemaker so they can make the best wine possible and some of those and and one of those things is you know essentially the, the skin of the berry has all the the stuff in it that makes a wine, you know, in case of red wines, you know, makes a wine, you know, red, it makes a wine, you know, have a um, mouthfeel and, and all these other things that people want, you know, flavor. And, and, um, so, uh, that's essentially what we're trying to increase. And so, you know, there's, and there's arguments with the way people look at these things or whatever, but, um, you know, what I kind of view is, you know, total polymeric pigments is really what we're trying to increase because that's the hardest thing, you know, from a wine quality standpoint or the thing that, that can be washed out by over irrigation or not enough stress in the, in a particular point in the year. And, and so you can literally have, you know, two crops side by side on the same property, you know, same environmental conditions, everything. And, you know, one crop will be four tons per acre and the other crop will be four tons per acre. And, and there's a huge quality difference. You know, the, the four on the left might, um, you know, might take 35 clusters to get to four tons per acre. And the other one might take, you know, 25 clusters to get to four tons per acre. And, and that surface to volume ratio is, is huge. So that's going to change the flavor. Absolutely. And so you want the one that's got 35 clusters because you've got more skin in, mm. in that. And so when they press it out, you know, and in many cases with the stuff that, you know, that we're producing and whether it's a property or part of our management is, you know, uh, could be in contention, but, um, but essentially the the numbers that we've returned back consistently is you know high high end stuff is considered somewhere around 3000 um you know low end management might return about 1200 in this concentration of the total total polymeric pigments really decent management somewhere in 16 to 1800 range and our stuff you know over the last several years we've been producing is somewhere been somewhere between 2500 and 2800 and um and and in the finished product of a lot of these high-end wines, they they actually take our grapes and manage down to about you know twenty-one hundred to twenty-two hundred, in some cases twenty-three hundred, and um, wow. as opposed to like you know basically getting those grapes in and then trying to beat the skins to get as much <laughs> stuff out of them as possible, or or bleeding off some of the juice and and replacing it with water to to get the alcohol and concentration to be correct. So, what makes an amazing wine? I mean, you're talking about high-end wines. What 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 does that mean? What's a high-end wine? How do you define that? What what really kind of separates the wheat from the chaff, so to speak? That's a difficult question. Um, you know, a lot of these, a large percentage of Washington State is is you know, say ninety ninety plus percent is actually goes to three main companies in the state, and so they farm those grapes completely different. A lot of them with machines and stuff like that. And then there's this, you know, and that's like three main wineries. And there's I think. Uh, to date, maybe there's somewhere around a thousand wineries in Washington state. So that kind of shows you, you know, the, <laughs> the breadth that exists out there, even on that, you know, that five to 10% level. And, uh, you know, 
so the guys that we deal with primarily, you know, they're, and what we try to do and what they're looking for is they want to have the right property that, you know, naturally gets to, you know, the right bricks and, and, um, and then bricks being the amount of sugar sweetness. And absolutely. The, yeah. yeah. They want them to get to right amount of sweetness so that they're not underripe. And so that they produce these flavors and certain sites lend to that easier every year. And some sites don't, but you know, through correct irrigation and stuff like that, you can essentially, you know, um, build this grape where the wine, where the winemakers actually take it in and they just try not to screw it up, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that's kind of like what my version of a, a high end wine is. It doesn't necessarily mean price point either, because there's some winemakers out there that are making, you know, um, 25 and $30 bottles that are absolutely worth every penny and more, um, you know, based on their flavor and their winemaking style and how consistent they are. And, um, you know, and then there's guys out there that charge a hundred to 150 or $200 for a bottle. And, and some of those are really great and some, you know, aren't worth the money either. So that's what I was going to ask you, like yep. these really high dollar bottles of wine. If I go to a restaurant and see that I can, you know, go to the, well, I guess I was going to say top of the list. Usually it's the bottom of the list, that bottle that's, you know, a hundred some dollars. Is yep. it really going to be that much? I never buy that one cause I can't afford it, but yeah. Does it really taste that much better and why? Yeah. And I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of people, you know, give me wine or be in tastings where we've done these things and yeah. compared them side by side. And, and, uh, you know, um, yeah, some it's, it's hit and miss and it's hard. It's really hard for the consumer to know. I mean, the reality is, is when they walk into a grocery store and I don't know what the average is now, but a few years ago, the average was like 1600 skews or something like that of just <laughs> wine sitting in one, one store. So how, you know, when they're purchasing a, 10 or a 25 or a $30 bottle, like, you know, even at that end, like they don't want to make a mistake and get something that they don't like necessarily. So once they find something that they do, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll stick, stick or yeah. Or maybe they go out and tasting. Uh, That's what I do. I go there and I'm like overwhelmed by all the different brands. Yep. And it's like, I try to do some reading for a while. Usually I'll spend a few minutes there reading bottles and trying to understand and looking at years and stuff. And then I'm just like, Oof, I don't know, and either just kind of pick something that looks cool based on what the graphic design, yeah. or something that I've had before. Yeah, yeah, and you know, for Wash for people in Washington, you know, I mean, Woodenville is an excellent uh, resource. You know, Wall Wall, if you want to make a trip, or you know, even in the Tri Cities area, there's some you know some major outlets that have a ton of wineries and. Um, you know, now I think they're charging some tasting fees, but it's fun to go out, find something that you like that's local, ask the people there, get the story and, and, uh, you know, and taste the wine. And if you like it, great. And I'm sure that anybody can find something that is, you know, tastes great, um, is, you know, locally produced and, um, and a really high quality wine at many different price points in Washington. So when did it hit you that I'm a farmer and I'm passionate about it? Like it became an identity thing for you. Yeah, that was, um, so I, I, I ended up dropping out of school. I went to, I went to, uh, you know, four years of college for viticulture and enology. Um, I brewed that whole time on the weekend, um, ended up quitting that job, uh, when I picked up, um, my job to go basically be a general manager at a farm and we're, it was 110 acres at the time. And over five, five years, we built it up to about 175 acres. There was other properties and tree fruit and stuff that we dealt with besides grapes, but 175 acres of grapes is what we dealt with there in 23 varieties. So, and part of that was done in test blocks and things like that. But, um, but you know, it was, it was a really cool undertaking because you kind of understand all the you know personalities of these grapes and they all 
have different personalities and how they grow or why they want to grow or how much they want to produce or how to control them, how they deal with water, you know, I mean, or the season. I mean, uh, some like wind, some don't, some like a lot of water, some don't, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, kind of once I moved to his property and after the first year I was like, okay, I, you know, I, I really kind of dig this. And, and, um, and then the second year it was like, I'm really digging this. And, and it still felt like, you know, maybe I'm, not a farmer and pretending or something, but you know, after about like year three, year four, when we, after we dealt with some, uh, some pretty hard curveballs that were thrown to us, I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I'm in this and I think I'm good at it. And, uh, and now I'm a farmer. So <laughs> where'd you grow up and what'd you grow? You didn't grow up around farming, did you? Uh, not, you know, indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up in Hermiston, Oregon, which is a big farming town. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've had aunts and uncles and, you know, I come from a big family. So aunts and uncles and everything that have been in farming, um, some of them currently, you know, do, um, you know, build stuff for processing facilities and things like that. But I, you know, other than hanging out with my dad, when, you know, I was a kid, um, you know, he worked for a place called circle C, which did hay cubes and they sold those hay cubes to, mm-hmm. uh, to Japan. But, uh, he did that job for 17 years and probably five or six of those years, I was, you know, old enough to remember. And, you know, we'd go on truck rides and stuff together and I'd go out to the farm and stuff, but, you know, really wasn't directly, um, uh, uh, related to, you know, or didn't spend a whole lot of time in it anyway. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a big farmer, but he died, you know, um, when I was really young, mm-hmm. uh, right around 88 or 89. And, uh, he was a German guy. He loved his, uh, his sheep. He had pigs and mm. a lot of watermelons and stuff that are grown down in Hermiston. And, yeah. um, but again, you know, I was really young and, and, uh, I didn't get, you know, exposed to a lot of that. Um, but, uh, you know, and then went going to high school and stuff, I didn't hang out in FFA or, you know, with any of those guys necessarily. I had cowboy friends that farmed wheat and all this stuff, but, you know, again, wasn't directly. And, uh, you know, when I came back from Iraq, cause I came back from Iraq and literally it was like eight, 10 days later, I out processed and left Germany and, and I was back in the U S and, and, uh, you know, that spring, uh, among, you know, attending and going into, uh, school at, at Pendleton, um, I, uh, you know, I took a, a greenhouse class, which I, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, we produced stuff for the local market. And so there was timing and all these things that we had to plan for. That was fantastic. And, and, um, uh, yeah, so that was kind of, kind of when I first started. So I really wasn't exposed to it much other than I grew up around it, but I never really dealt with it. I was, I was more into like, you know, going snowboarding and <laughs> like stuff like that when I was a kid or, you know, fishing really is, that was my main thing. I think I used to joke cause I fished like 300 days a year or something on the local <laughs> route. We weren't even catching anything good. Like maybe like, I mean, I could count on my hands, like maybe twice a year, I might catch some smelt or something that was running up the river. I might get a smallmouth bass like once a year or something, but the rest of it was all squawfish, you know? So, <laughs> But you were having fun fishing. Oh, yeah. Yep, fishing absolutely. is more about the process, right? Than, yep. Which is why I'm no good at it, because I have, I have no patience. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the Army. How, did you go into the Army right after, um, right after high school? No, I didn't. Uh, I kind of took an odd path. Um, you know, uh, I went in at 24, which is a lot older. And so that would put me right around 2004. I didn't go into the army. Um, you know, there's a lot of people at that time when they were going in the army, they were, they were going in because of, you know, country pride or, you know, family uh, tradition type of deal or something was probably the main stuff. I went in at that time mainly, um, because one, I think I was trying to 
um, you know, escape my situation, like somewhere on the, on the back end. Now that I look uh, back at it, not that I was in a bad situation, just that I, um, that I, f- I felt like I needed to change or do something. What had you been doing after high school then um, up until 24 and I was enlisting, you know, I was, I was fairly successful. Um, you know, I, I've always been put in charge of stuff and the same thing happened when I went in the service too. But, um, you know, at 16 years old, I was supposed to be a bus boy. And, uh, you know, within three months of getting hired there, they, they fired the chef and, and he had, um, you know, uh, asked me, Hey kid, are you hungry? And I said, yeah. And he said, well then cook it yourself. And he used an expletive when he did, the guy was kind of a jerk. Um, but he taught me how to, and he was a type A individual. So he'd written all these notes all over the kitchen. And so he taught me how to read all of his notes. And three months later, when he got fired on a Thursday night, you know, and the owner thought that he was going to come back, um, you know, he didn't. And it was like Friday called his bluff. Yeah. And it was a steakhouse in echo Oregon and, you know, um, called the echo hotel that used to be an operation. It was a pretty good steakhouse. It was like three or four star. I think it was four star at one time, but when I was there, it probably wasn't. But, um, anyways, uh, so it was a really long pause when the owner's like, Hey, does anybody know how to cook prime rib? And, uh, (laughs) nobody says anything. And the 16 year old kids like, yeah, I know how to cook it. And, uh, so I started cooking, you know, we cooked five, six, you know, 30 pound prime ribs every, you know, every Friday and Saturday night, you know, plus during the week and everything. And so that's what I did while I was in high school. And I got done doing that and I went into warehousing essentially. And, um, so I worked for Walmart distribution system uh, center in Hermiston for two years. And I was put in charge of the dock with within six months, not like as a manager or anything, but I ran all the doors. And so we'd, we'd bring in and out, you know, and unload 50 trucks in a day. And so that was kind of my first foray into management is I had like, you know, 15 people that would, you know, take all the pallets around the warehouse off of the dock and 15, 20 people that would unload those trailers. And, and, uh, um, and I left there and, um, and, uh, decided to go to school in Portland for, um, art school, which is kind of an odd move, but that was kind of like what my passion was at the time. And, and, uh, so I went down there and started going to that and, um, started lifting weights when I was in Portland and, and ended up, uh, dropping out of that school because, and the main reason why I dropped out of that was I basically sat there and, you know, for me, uh, I was like, well, you know, as a graphic designer, like, how am I going to sell anything to a world that I don't know, you know, Mm. about? And I realized that, you know, I didn't know anything about the world yet because I'm I'm only 20 years old and, and, you know, lived in a small town all my life, except for the last six or six months or a year or something like that in a, in a big city or larger city. And, um, so that's when I kind of, I dropped out of school and I, started working for a Sears at a warehouse. I did that for a couple of years. And then, and then I went into beer and wine distribution, which is actually, um, which is actually what I, I got into. And I did that for, um, did that for like another year. And, um, and then I enlisted in the service and, and left. And, um, and I did it for leadership purposes. By that point, I'd been put in charge of you know, enough warehouses and people and things like that, that I started piecing together how this, how this whole thing worked, even though I wouldn't really consider myself a real good leader at that point. And, um, you know, but yeah, I started piecing all this thing together and I said, well, you know, 232 year old organization at the time, I was like, they got to know something about leadership. And, and so I went in and, and that's exactly what I got schooled on. There was, you know, excellent leadership and there was absolutely terrible leadership at the same time. And, and, uh, you know, and I learned just as much from, from each one of those individuals, um, as, as I could. And, uh, you know, I went in the service and, uh, in basic training, I ended up, I was uh, a distinguished honor graduate. And then uh, when I went to training for another six or eight months for the radar stuff that we dealt with, um, 
you know, um, I was put in charge of the platoons there and then I was put in charge of uh, the next platoon that I was in on that base. And, and then I showed up to my, showed up to my unit in Germany and, and, uh, within a, um, within about uh, a year I was, I was put in charge of my section and then, uh, put into a, a sergeant role at about two and a half years. And the day I was promoted to E5, then they put me in a six role to run, um, you know, the, the division for what we did. And then we were sent to Iraq. And uh, wow. and then there was supposed to be an E7 in charge of us, and, and he got augmented out to Baghdad. And so I ran, you know, his show. And, wow. you know, it was like an E5. And so we had, you know, I think it was 25 different vehicles and we had two different groups that were ours and six different radars in total that we were managing in theater. And of course this came down to a lot of computer programming. We were doing a reset. We were basically moving from old, you know, intranet and things like that to, you know, actual category five cables and, and, you know, real internet connections, which seems kind of late to be doing that around 2007, but, but uh, that was a reality. And, um, yeah. And so that was really fun. So I learned a ton and, and, um, spent a lot, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the dangerous job necessarily in Iraq, but I've been, you know, because of where the radars were located and our teams were located, I, I went to just about every single base and some of them were absolutely terrible ones, you know, not much bigger than a dog kennel in the middle of the desert, um, you know, in Northern Iraq. So pretty much everywhere Baghdad North where we had a base, I've, I've stopped by there probably at one time or another. So what a unique perspective, or at least it seems like it to me, because I don't think of people going in, enlisting in the army, thinking I'm going to get basically professional development on leadership. It makes a ton of sense looking at it from this view. Yep. But I, I know, especially at that age, I would not have thought about it that way. And certainly with what was going on in the world at that time, I would have been scared. Like, I'm going to be putting you know, put in harm's way yep. if I do this with what was happening with the Iraq war that had to have been going through your head at that point. Like, what am I signing up for here? Yeah, it was, you know, um, you know, to be honest, I mean, I, the reality is I was just young and dumb, you know, we, you know, um, a lot of kids and not that it's dumb, you know, it's absolutely a fantastic job and there's great professional development, a lot of pluses for going in and, and, you know, serving your country and doing those things. Um, so I'm not taking away any of that or anything that anybody else puts in, whether they stay in the whole time or not. And, but, um, you know, but it just wasn't, you know, even during a time of war, I mean, you know, we don't really know what that is until we go and see it, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I didn't understand it completely and I didn't understand what the full commitment really is because even after you get out, you know, there's stuff that you have to deal with on a personal level that, you know, you didn't even, and I, mm. I like planning ahead and, uh, and, you know, there's things that I didn't understand that I didn't plan for that happened to me, you know, after I got back and, uh, you know, and we had to deal with that stuff and, uh, you know, one really interesting one, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I probably, um, I don't know if you'll get this in this interview or not, but I have a really good memory typically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know if that's because I read a ton or not, but, um, I lost it, you know, temporarily after I got out of this, uh, after I got back, I mean, literally it was as bad as, you know, like the day or two after I got back, you know, I mean, I'm like, I park my car, go into a subway or something like that and come out and I'd have to search for my car, Mm. you know, every single time. I mean, it was really weird. Why? What did that? Uh, what I ended up figuring out later, um, you know, it took me about six months and, and it it wasn't quite that apparent. The first few weeks were, were really apparent. And then after that, I still had issues. One of the issues when I started going to college, um, at WSU, um, during that summer course, uh, or a, a summer course that I took was, um, you know, and I told the teacher, I just said, Hey, you know, 
hey man, like, um, not trying to be disrespectful or anything like that, but if I don't show up to class, I may just have forgotten, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that was real. Like I actually, like, and I told him, I said, I really enjoy the class and I really enjoy you as a teacher, but sometimes like I just forget this stuff and it's hard for me to remember. And it was, and, and it was like four or five years later, I found like that old schedule and, and I looked at it and it was literally, it was like five days a week at 1130 AM. <laughs> So, I mean, it was like the easiest schedule to like remember, but literally I'd be, you know, and I lived like 40 minutes away at the time or something like that, but it would be like noon. And then I'd realize that I forgot my class. And so what I found out what had happened, um, it really had nothing to do with me losing my memory, but once you're over there and your priorities are different, you know, um, you know, remembering where your car parked is parked and stuff like that isn't a priority. And, um, you know, as opposed to the other things that are going on and, you know, and then you get back after you have not you know, cause you're over there and something may happen or whatever. And, and, uh, so when you get back, it's like your mind has built all this stuff of, you know, potential or what you can do or, or whatever, when you get back. And so my mind, I figured out was just, it was just rolling so fast that I just wasn't paying attention to the things that were right in front of my face. And so kind of retrain my brain to, to, to slow down and, and, you know, take the opportunities that they come and pay attention to the mm-hmm. present was, um, you know, I mean, it was a real thing. Basically living and working in a war zone in that capacity just gets you so, you have to be so keyed up to be managing that. You don't even, yeah, and you don't even think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, all the normal things that somebody has is basically taken taste- off your plate. I mean, food's in the same place every day if you're on a base or something like that, or it might change if you're on a different base. And um, but you know, you don't have to worry cause food's provided. So you're not really worried about going to the store. There's nobody hammering you with marketing or advertising cause you're not watching TV or, you know, I mean, there was no cell phones or anything back in the day that had any capabilities like that. So we weren't doing any of that. And, you know, uh, the internet still was fairly marginal at that time, you know, especially for what you could get over there. Plus communications were bad. So, I mean, literally like, you know, you're removed from the world. Uh, which is was a good thing too for me because I saved all my money while I was in Iraq exactly for that reason. We didn't have to spend it, so I didn't. And uh, and I saved, and I had probably you know forty to fifty thousand dollars. It was it was saved between uh, and, in you know, and then I was injected back in in you know January of two thousand nine um, to the you know one of the worst economies in in American history, and you know, and I took that money and I bought a house that's. $57,000, you know, which is ridiculous to think, you know, nowadays, cause they've went up and all those same houses now are selling for like 180 and I sold mine, you know, after I went to school with low mortgage and all that stuff, I sold it for 140 and that kind of got everything paid off. And, mm-hmm. you know, essentially I went back to zero, but with an education, which was fantastic because I have four years of school and didn't know anybody, anything. So then I could start building from there. And that's, and, and that's where, you know, the ideation for the building a business and stuff like that, you know, came from is it's like, Hey, I'm on a level playing field and I made some smart moves, even though I didn't realize I was making them when I was that young and, and, uh, you know, we're going to roll with this. Do you see some scary stuff over there in Iraq? Um, you know, personally, no, um, you know, we, I mean, I say personally, no, you know, um, you know, my version of being mortared is probably different to most people's, you know, um, you know, four or 500 feet away is not being mortared in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, to somebody else it may be, um, you know, or, you like know, like having a mortar hit that close to you. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even see, you know I mean? Like you're, yeah, that would, that would be mortared for me. Yeah. You don't even, (laughs) you don't even see them, you know, in a lot of, I mean, that's the scary part. Right. But, 
um, yeah, you don't even see them. Uh, you know, it could be at night. You're like, you're leaving at, you know, 12 midnight or something like that. And you're walking back to your, you know, your containerized housing unit, what they call the chew. And, uh, you know, and that's protected by these, you know, HESCO barriers, which are filled with dirt and stuff like that to keep any shrapnel. But, but, you know, um, anyways, you know, one could hit and you don't know where it hit necessarily. It was fairly close, but you know, didn't rock your world. So like, you're good. And, uh, you know, I may have had to call up. I had, had a team of sergeants that, um, that I was in charge of that would go out and repair these radios. And there were several times where I had to call up and see whether, um, those guys had, uh, you know, cause there's several people that died on a base or something like that. And, um, we had to make sure that, you know, that our guy was okay and, um, and all that. So, I mean, that stuff kind of jerks you. And then, you know, of course we're dealing with division operations center. So, you know, we're watching a lot of stuff that happens or we're seeing a lot of stuff. And, and, and it's actually a really good point. You know, when we start talking, and I'm not saying whether I had PTSD or not, but, um, when we start talking about that, you know, the, the battlefield has changed from what it used to be. It used to be, um, you know, there's this, what they call the flop forward line of troops, bad guys are over there. Good guys are over here. Like they're going to clash and something's going to happen. And now it's like, you know, it's kind of all around. And, you know, from that standpoint, you know, the safety of the troops and the equipment stuff that they have is, um, you know, I mean, it's massive. I mean, these, I mean, literally a guy can get shot with a, uh, an AK 47, if he gets hit in the plate and fall down and he might have a bruise and, you know, be a little bit rattled or whatever, but like, he's good. Or they can get, you know, wounded in other senses and, you know, still make it home because of the, you know, the uh, uh, medical that we have and, and how fast response time is and all those things that, you know, have came up. And so what, what's ended up happening is this smaller portion of people, you know, go into battle and experience these things. So maybe in the past it was like 80% of people on the front line and, and 20% people in support. And now it's more like 20% of the people on front line and, and 80% in support. And, and so you concentrate all these experiences into this small number of people but what's important is that small number of people they only see what's right in front of them and you know how horrific it may be um you know the people in the back don't necessarily see that but instead of seeing just one or being in one individual scenario you got all these people that you know they're fed information from every area and they're you know looking at all these or they're hearing the response come you know come into these uh you know these facilities that are that are you know, making the responses to help these guys out and, and, but they're doing it for five or 10 different areas or, you know, and all week long and working longer hours too. And, and, you know, 18 hour days in some cases doing this stuff. And I mean, it's just, you know, it takes a toll on you. I mean, even for what we did, you know, I think I worked, I worked the most I've ever worked was when I was in Iraq. I did like 400 days in a row or something ridiculous like that. And it was like eight and all of them were like 18 hour days. Some of them were like 20 wow. hour days. So you know, that kind of stuff, you know, has a toll, you know, on the, on the human body in the end. And so, you know, you come back and you have some fatigue issues and things and you got to figure out how to figure out how to reset. And, you know, probably the biggest thing aside from, you know, the pills they try giving you or any of these other things, is just, you know, exercise, uh, eat right. And, uh, you know, try to keep moving. How does that affect you now in what you're doing that whole experience? I mean, it sounds like there's Definitely some bad, definitely some good as well with like the yeah. leadership stuff that you were yeah. able to do. No, there's, you know, massive amount of humility, um, you know, with, uh, you know, with people in general, um, you know, especially some of the stuff I've learned over the last, you know, several years is like, you know, the world will try and tell you that there's all these uh, things coming up or that it might have priorities for you. And so, you know, but um, priorities are, priorities are big. 
um, you know, being able to pick and choose which ones are the right priority, you know, where you're going to put your time and energy and where you're not going to put your time and energy. And that allows you to get a lot of stuff done. And, um, you know, and there was at the time probably self-judgmental things like that. And I think, you know, being self-judgmental on any, anything is, is, uh, not going to get you, you know, going in the right place. And, um, and so sometimes just, you know, dropping that expectation that you've created in your mind and, you know, just trying to wake up, do the best thing you can in the moment and list your priorities and just keep rocking and rolling, you know, uh, that's probably how it's affected me the most, but, you know, having a really wide experience background as far as that's concerned and some of the other things I've done, you know, and I find it funny, especially when I talk to either soldiers or other people that, you know, um, you know, they say, well, I've done all these things, but, you know, I can't do that because, you know, I don't have the experience in that. But the reality is, 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 uh, you know, those are the backgrounds, you know, everybody has a really unique background and, um, and all of those things, when you're trying to build a team, uh, you know, they come into play. And, um, and so having all these unique backgrounds put together, you know, um, uh, you can get some really interesting solutions for, and, and build some teams that have, you know, really strong, um, from, taking all these parts and pieces of their lives that they've learned and, and trying to get them to work in unison towards a single goal. And, um, so I think that, that kind of realization is, is good. So you guys do custom viticulture and it's called brothers and farms, right? Yes. Which is kind of an homage to your military background. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the questions I asked, you know, is how, how can we help you know, veterans and stuff like that. And one of my, one of my answers to that was, okay, let me build something that's as strong as possible. And then, um, and then we're going to, um, start integrating in ways to, you know, help, uh, service veterans as they get out and, and, and all of that. And I've got some buddies that I met, you know, through the school and stuff like that, that I went to that, um, are doing some great things in Washington for veterans. So, um, we've been reaching out to those and we may start doing some, uh, some scholarships, um, for some of these vets that come back to help ease, you know, any of the cost and stuff like that as they go through school. So can farming be a good thing to do when you get out? You talked about having that time where you kind of needed to reset. Yeah. I, first thing I started doing is growing a, growing a garden and, uh, you know, and for, you know, veterans that are dealing with stuff, you know, haven't, you know, I also picked up a dog too. Um, I, I've had a dog, you know, by my side for the last, you know, 11 years now that I've been out or, yeah, it's been 11 years. And, um, anyways, uh, you know, having something that you need to go out and water and take care of and, and, you know, something that, you know, says, Hey, you know, there's something out there that's bigger than you. Um, that, that gives you humility and, and keeps you less focused on yourself and, and, you know, more focused on, you know, the things that need to happen and, you know, dogs, especially they need, you know, and, and, you know, with dogs, you know, one of the, probably one of the, the, uh, most inspiring things that, uh, I learned from my dog, um, and her name's blue, uh, the most inspiring thing I learned, you know, during that hard period of my life was, um, you know, every day she would, come in and she would eat the exact same dog food you know every single day and she was just as happy if not happier to eat it at that moment than any other time uh, and and so that's inspiring to see you know what kind of dog is blue uh she's a, a german short hair pointer so you guys do custom viticulture right is that yes would that be the how, what does that mean essentially we do custom we do custom farming for clients so um you know if a 
company or person owns a property and um, and they don't they aren't necessarily interested in you know taking all the liabilities and all that stuff to grow the grapes or maybe they want a specific prop uh, product off of that property. Um, you know, my company comes in and we offer the solution to do everything on that property for them and um, save for doing this, uh, the sale of grapes and this uh, essentially everything to get it to harvest. And then we harvest it and, and their clients come and pick it up and take it back to the winery. And um, so, you know, and some of the clients are real discerning and some are less discerning. And, uh, you know, so we've came, we've come up with a, you know, we take a lot of data and stuff like that, which is different. We're trying to integrate say, the newer world into what we do. And so, um, you know, and part of that is, you know, the communications and uh, the computer science and stuff like that. So we built databases in the background of the, um, in the background of the business to deal with, you know, the, the payroll stuff and legalities and chemical records and, and all that stuff. So literally like my guys are going out, like, and if we're taking a shoot link measurement on a property, they're doing it on an iPad and it goes in and literally, you know, the end of the week, we print off a PDF report, um, send that to the client, shows them exactly what's going on in the property and why we're making those decisions. And, um, so it's pretty cool. So these are people who want to be able to own a vineyard kind of thing. Yep. Some are people, some are companies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a lot of them, you know, already exist in the marketplace, but as you know, labor prices obviously going up, uh, we've taken, you know, a, a dollar and a half increased this year alone. Um, you know, but over the last, uh, about five, six years, you know, we've went up about three or $4 and, uh, um, so, you know, labor gets pretty expensive and, um, you know, for us to come in and, you know, say we're farming like 450 acres currently, but we build a crew that, you know, is such that, you know, those people are on and off that property. Um, you know, they're, and the tractors are on and off those properties. So, you know, a you know, a company or an individual doesn't have to go in and buy an $80,000 tractor and use it for 500 hours on a property. You know, we can use it for a thousand hours between all of our properties and we might have three or four tractors and have the implements and things like that to do it. Not only that, but the labor to be able to go in there and, and get things done in a timely fashion. And so that's, you know, essentially we're leveraging time and creating efficiency through, you know, scale. So several small guys can, you know, get a, cost that would be um economical you know while we're taking the brunt of you know the work and moving it around to to properties on an economical level so at that level it's just like the custom farming i grew up around actually when i was quite young my dad was a custom farmer yep i mean for his version was he had a tractor and some dirt work implements and he would go out and work people's fields for them because they were maybe a small dairy farm and they didn't uh, they couldn't afford to have that tractor and implements I mean, he couldn't either if he was just doing that small amount, but because he was yep. driving on, yeah, same thing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, spreading that around and letting somebody else kind of deal with that part of it. Yep. Does that put more risk on you though, without the reward of being the owner? Uh, you know, I think, um, I think if you guys listen to much of my story, I'm not, I'm not really, <laughs> not really that worried about risk. <laughs> um, I've always been kind of a risk taker. Um, you know, um, I don't really view it as, you know, I, I view, I'm pretty good at hedging downsides and, um, and the biggest thing, you know, on, as far as risk is, is concerned is, uh, you know, I, I probably, um, I probably am at some larger amount of risk, but, you know, I mean, we do a lot of things to hedge those, you know, I mean, we have contracts in place that are put in, you know, by attorneys and stuff like that to make sure that, um, that I'm hedging, hedging all my bets in the right direction. And, and yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of money floating out there, uh, you know, and, 
you know, making payroll and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a real deal, but, um, but, and, and that's why, you know, when we look at, you know, the values of why we do what we do or how we do what we do, um, you know, we go back to the original values and that's what we make decisions on. And the biggest thing is, you know, providing a product to our, our customers that, um, you know, people like, or they want. And, and, uh, but more importantly, it's, you know, it's communication and it's, and it's, uh, being real with the people and, you know, the people being either those in the management level, uh, of my business or, you know, the people that are actually out doing the work, we're trying to provide a really solid job for them. You know, from that standpoint, there's definitely jobs out there that they can get in farming, um, you know, as the cost increases, what we've seen, um, you know, for these other businesses is we have a lot, we're, we're actually driving a lot of uh, employees from, you know, tree fruit or whatever towards us or operations like us. Um, because, um, as that price increases, those farmers are in many cases asking those employees to do more or buy the piece and faster. And ours isn't necessarily about that. We're more about quality and we're trying to give them, you know, as much work as possible throughout the year. And, and, People in general, it doesn't matter whether they're working in a field or whether they're working for a business, they want to work for somebody that's organized and that whatever they do in the field doesn't, you know, somebody doesn't come in and make another decision and say, you know, undo that and go do this. And, mm-hmm. um, and that gets real confusing for somebody. And so that, those are the types of things that we try to provide to, you know, to, to the workers. And, and so we've been successful driving, you know, people towards us in a, in a short, uh, short labor economy. Yeah, how how does that go? Are you able to find enough people? Yeah, I mean, we just turned turned down a couple guys uh, the other day because uh, we just picked up four um, to help us with some stuff that we're trying to get off of our plate this spring. And um, but yeah, and then we had guys that contacted us last year and they said, hey, um, you know, uh, uh, they said, hey, you know, we work in tree fruit and and we'd like to come over to you guys because things are getting real tight over there and we see what you guys are doing. And, and, you know, by and large, a lot of these, you know, these families that work for us, they all go to the same church locally. And so, you know, everybody, everybody talks, um, you know, behind closed doors and they find out what's going on where. And so, um, you know, so our perception is good from that standpoint right now, we're capping the business at, you know, 50 people, um, for the time being. And then, um, and then we're going to walk over that 50, uh, 50 person line, you know, as soon as I feel comfortable to, but, um, for this year, based on how fast we've grown, um, what I want to do and what I am doing is we're investing back into the infrastructure of the business as I build out the administrative side, uh, that's going to create a really nice, um, you know, concrete, you know, solid launch pad. And then we're going to, we're going to ramp it up from there. What's the future look like? I know the wine community here in Washington is kind of coming of age from what I've heard and read that it was growing like crazy because it used to be a California thing. And then it became a Washington thing, right? Yeah. Washington, Washington on the world stage has been doing amazing. Um, you know, and there's one major reason behind that amongst others, but, um, but one of the major reasons behind that is we essentially, we don't have very much rain over here in this part of the state six inches per year is probably the average some cases we have a little bit more some cases we have a little bit less but you know again we go back to you know what's the number one thing that's going to improve quality and it's water um you know how much water you have there so if you don't have enough water to grow a grape plant um then you get to choose whatever you want to put on it and uh and that's going to change the quality in the end you know, as a case in point, first irrigation in many cases for, you know, say Napa Valley, um, is, you know, seven fifteen. So say July 15th or something like that. Um, 
they've already grown up, set the fruit and fruits, fruits going in close to verays on at that point, you know? And, uh, you know, for us, um, you know, if we don't irrigate that grape, uh, by the time it even gets into bloom, uh, we're not going to have any bloom. Um, so we get to choose, you know, how fast and how long those canes grow, um, which is going to give us a can- canopy density, not only reduce costs, but canopy density, uh, from a canopy density standpoint, you're going to get more sunlight on your grapes on average year in and year out. Um, we have the ability to, to, to hit, um, if somebody manages the irrigation correctly, we have the ability to hit really tight brackets on, on how big those berries are and what kind of concentration levels they have. And, um, you know, that's been playing out, you know, and as the farmers get better and they have, you know, over the last 10 or 11 years, we've seen, you know, a lot of really good farmers, uh, come out and start improving some of their operations and, you know, even putting in some of these new trellising and stuff like that, that kind of naturally gets the grapes, uh, to where they want to be. Um, you know, I think Washington's got more 90 point wines, uh, in this state, uh, than any other wine region in the world. Um, you know, on a yearly basis is, is, is what I've been told. And, uh, and that's massive. You know, that means that we're just creating a, a massive amount of really good wines every year. And that's hard for anybody to, to go back and say, well, you know, not that area, you know? Um, so, uh, we're kind of emerging as this big power. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic from a quality standpoint, which is, which is fantastic. But some things are starting to slow down as, as far as the market for Washington wines, right? Um, it's not just changing. the yeah. It's not just the Washington market. There's uh, you know the essentially there was we had several really good years or high crop you know quantity years and so the bulk market is full right now and um, but you know based on some of the economists that we've looked at you know typically or we've I've talked to or listened to um, you know it happens every so often and uh, they only last, you know, two to three years or something like that. And then we'll, and then we bounce back from them and, and that's just, and we actually went a fairly long time without that. So, you know, um, although we're feeling a little bit of pain right now, as far as those things are concerned, um, not, uh, not a concern over the long run, in my opinion. Is part of it, what variety is cool at a given time oh. and, and the amount of time that it takes to get a variety up and producing, which is years, right? The market may have moved on to something else that's trendy. Not, um, you know, when you start talking about, you know, time for planning and investment and stuff like that, you know, in general, um, you know, I look at crops that, um, you know, you can get a, a full crop within one year or say even 18 months or two years or something like that. Typically those crops have huge swings um, in varieties and changes and stuff like that because they're a lot cheaper and faster. Not that they're necessarily cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than, you know, say a vineyard pulling out or something like that. But, you know, hops is a big one or has been. Now there's some some reasons why that, that market's stabilized more than it has in its, you know, the last four or 500 years of its history. But, um, you know, with the microbrewers taking over as opposed to the, you know, a lot of the large farmers and, you know, in, in quantity and volume used. Um, but the, uh, but in the grapes, um, I mean, yeah, it takes three years to get up and get a partial crop. And by the time you've taken all that cost and about the 25,000 or 30,000 an acre to input those, you know, that, that stuff, you've got a significant investment. So most people that are planting are planting safe bets. Um, there are people that will plant out there and they'll plant some you know, some funky stuff and, and some of it goes over well and some of it doesn't, um, some of it gets changed. Um, but yeah, by and large, uh, you know, when a property goes in, people will make some pretty safe bets as to what they're going to put in. So what are the trendy varieties over the last few years and, and how has that been evolving? I mean, you know, cab is king. 
um, you know, that's kind of the, the nature of the beast and, and the hot wine growing areas of the world and, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and the cooler growing areas, but, uh, you know, Chardonnay still in the warm growing areas for a white. And, um, you know, so those really haven't changed a whole lot, um, from the standpoint of, you know, what varieties they are. The big thing that's changed probably over the last, you know, five or 10 years is the number of clones that we've got of those that we have of those varieties. And, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of opinions floating out there about, you know, what well, is it clone eight or is it, you know, clone, you know, whatever you name it. I mean, there's tons of them out there. And All that stuff the consumer never sees because they just see I'm buying a bottle of Cabernet. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, we've, you know, we do those tastings and stuff like that to see if there's any, you know, uh, reliability there in one year or the next. And, um, you know, some of them are non-perceptible to the, or you know, would probably be largely non-perceptible to a, you know, a standard customer that's out there buying it. Um, you know, but essentially a winemaker, the biggest part of their palate, uh, you know, or what they're going to create, you know, is, I mean, obviously they could do it from a clonal standpoint, but there's the difference is less significant there than if they just chose different growing regions. So, you know, you might buy some, something off of Red Mountain, which is a really hot growing region. You might go down to Benton City and buy something else that you're going to put in that blend that's, you know, maybe a different variety. It might keep a little bit better acid down there. You're going to blend it with something you get from Walla Walla or, you know, maybe higher elevation or down in White Salmon or something like that. And that's one of the cool things about Washington is we have so many microclimates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of really hot and cool places and, uh, both so that's what you mean when you talk about a hot growing region and a cool growing region that can just be down the road here basically yeah absolutely i mean i can drive two hours right now um you know from here or an hour yeah it's two hours from right now to here to white salmon and we can drop the number of heat units uh, that is received in a year by by half wow we go down 30 3,000, 3,500 or 3,800 or whatever the long term is here. And we can go down there and it's literally like, you know, 1,500 or 1,600. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that affects the number of variety, you know, the types of varieties that you can grow and ripen and changes the season parameters. And, you know, the best way to look at that isn't necessarily, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, there's, there's this heat that's accumulated over time, but probably the best way to look at, um, you know, the, what these different growing regions can do is, you know, what time bud break happens and then what those temperatures are out or like throughout that period of that grape's life, you know, every day on average, the highs and lows. And, um, and that's really going to affect what happens with that grape. So if you have, you know, a Cabernet Sauvignon that comes out on some property, you know, two weeks earlier than on another property, you know, every temperature, you know, for the rest of the season is going to be different at a different part of that that Mm. that particular plant's growing cycle and uh and that's going to end up making the flavor different in the end you know so there's gonna be different parameters that come with that and and some of you know when a winemaker goes out there he's picking and choosing these regions in many cases if they're doing a blend sometimes they do you know vineyard designates uh from a single vineyard or something like that but but for the most part he's going out there and he's picking you know cabernet sauvignon from three maybe particular locations or maybe it's three particular growers that he really trusts and and then he's going to put something together for his customers that uh, hopefully they'll enjoy this is the real food real people podcast these are the stories of the people who grow your food 
doesn't that change the way you think about Washington wine? Or and I just want to go have some now. And, and since that conversation that we had, which by the way was pre-COVID, so we didn't even really talk about the you know it wasn't time yet to to talk about the impacts that COVID had on the future. It would be interesting to go back and talk with Andrew now. Um, but it just makes you think different things about the wine that you're drinking. Andrew Schultz, awesome guy. We get into more big picture stuff next week, so you won't want to miss that one either. Make sure to check out our website, realfoodrealpeople.org. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media as well. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.